Bibles to Psalm 46. Well, we are now in our second week in the second book of the Psalms. Um, This time, Psalm 46. Last week, we saw self-counsel for the discouraged soul. This week, we will learn about rest and peace, or peace and rest, in an uncertain world. Um, This song is an incredible song of confidence in God. It's an incredible response to all manner of causes for fear, distress, and anxiety. And again, God is teaching us in these songs, they're given to us to sing to him, how to respond to circumstances in life that would trouble our soul, that would make us distressed, that would seem overwhelming. The psalm breaks up into three evenly divided stanzas or strophes, clearly marked by the salah, which is a musical term which indicates rest or pause or perhaps maybe even musical interlude. So let's read Psalm 46 and then we will study it. To the choir master of the sons of Korda, according to Almaoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Salah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. Lord God, Lord, you are the only true place of safety in all the universe. Um, Where you dwell, there is safety. With those who trust in you, there is security. And all all other promises for security are false. Lord, this world has so much to offer to put our hope in put our trust in so many things that promise to protect us and yet you alone are the sure fortress so Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear and help us to put our trust in you and you alone to be our defense and our rock and our deliverer in Jesus name amen so as we look at peace and rest in an uncertain world. Psalm 46 launches a series of three triumphal psalms. Um, Psalms 46, 47, and 48 form a series of songs of triumph, confidence in God. And so as we look at the first paragraph, the first verse, if you will, um, we're going to see radical confidence 
in God's sovereignty over nature. Radical confidence in God's sovereignty over nature. And the psalm starts out with a bold boast and claim. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's paralleled by the repeated chorus in verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. And then again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. This is the clear theme of this psalm. Confidence that God is our refuge. He's our fortress. He's with us. Literally in the Hebrew, it's not God is our refuge, but God is for us. A refuge and strength. The same thing holds up in verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord of hosts is for us. He is towards us. And it's, it's something we should take great comfort in. It's very personal. God, if you're his child, is for you. And he is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is the uh, Martin Luther, the famous reformer. This is his favorite psalm. Uh, many of you are familiar with his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is Our God is based off of these opening lines of Psalm 46. And whenever Luther be discouraged, and he had people trying to kill him, the Vatican had a hit out on him, he was being hidden away by German princes, and he had a lot to be discouraged about. He would call up his friend Melanchthon, or probably not call him up, but he would gather Melanchthon with him and say, Melanchthon, let's sing the 46th Psalm. This was, this was his go-to psalm when discouraged. Um, and, and you see what that man stood up against and how God used him to um, rediscover the gospel for the church. So it's a proclamation then of God's stability. And that's really the concept here. In the first stanza, we're looking at nature, the instability in nature. And later we're going to look at political cities and then the world. And there's a lot of things you can fear in nature. Germs, little tiny things, can wipe out whole civilizations. Um, there's natural disasters. There's, you know, swine flu. I mean, there, you just open the news. There are new things to be afraid of, new things to be concerned about. And yet in the sphere of the world and nature, the psalmist boldly proclaims that God is for us, a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, next to the word refuge and strength, I want you to write the word ability. Ability. And the concept here is this. God is effective at what he would do. And so to call him our refuge and strength is to indicate he is effective as a refuge. And he gives strength to those who trust and hide in him. That, that God is able to protect you from the, the dangers of this world. God is able to guard you from the things of this world. And, and next to a very present help is, right, the word availability. So you got the two pieces here. You've got someone who is able to defend, someone who is able to protect and strengthen, and someone who is willing and present to do it. Not only can God protect his people, not only can God guard us and give us strength, but he does. He's very present. I love that. He's not just present, he's very present. Help in trouble. That, that should give us confidence. Now, it's hard to believe this always, and I know that 
there are probably some of you struggling with, with things going on, concerns, that, that that may ring hollow. But again, the psalm is here for us to go to so that when we're afraid, when we are discouraged, when we are fearful, we go and we steep our minds in the word of God. We sing these songs and we gain courage. So first there's the proclamation of God's stability. Now we look at the application of God's stability. The psalmist is going to bring a case in point. And first, there's the testimony of our faith. If this is true, if it is true that God is a refuge, if God gives strength, and if he's very present, then there's really only one conclusion that can be made, and that is, verse 2, therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the text, always look what it's there for. It's linking ideas. This is a conclusion. This is a consequence. Because of verse 1, therefore, verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. The only possible conclusion that God is for us and he is a refuge and he gives strength and he's very present in time of trouble is to be unafraid. And that's the blank, unafraid. And if we're struggling with fear, these are the truths that we need to rehash in our minds. These are the truths we need to meditate on in our hearts. These are the truths, if you remember from last week, we need to talk back to ourselves with. Wait a second, soul. God is, God is for me, and he's my refuge and my strength, and he's present, very present, in time of trouble. So the testimony of our faith is we are unafraid. And then he gives a cataclysmic example, the testing of our faith. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now this is cataclysmic, tectonic, um, geo earth change. I was trying to get the geo word, but it didn't come together. Um, and... And what he's picturing is, is earthquakes and tidal waves and floods and, and devastation. He's, he's picturing the worst things this world has to offer. In fact, I think he's doing even more than that. Um, Gerald Wilson in his commentary suggests that by picturing the mountains moving and falling, the, the waters raging, what he's really drawing to pick mind is the picture of God's creation in Genesis 2 and 1. He writes, We are not talking about confidence in the face of minor disturbances or setbacks here, nor are we thinking of major, painful life losses, the death of a loved one, horrific, degenerating disease, and the like. As terrible as these may be, they pale in significance before the fearful prospect that the psalmist portrays. What he describes is not just an earthquake such as have recently devastated parts of the world. It is rather the dissolution of the world and life as we know it in what amounts to be a moment of uncreation. At creation, God placed the boundaries of the chaotic waters, restricting them so that dry land would appear, providing living space for animals and humans. Here the psalmist is declaring that even if the chaotic waters were to break forth and dissolve creation order back into chaos, there would be no reason for fear. That, that is a bold statement. That, that's the equivalent of saying, even if thermonuclear war break out, 
even if the even if all of creation and the order collapsed with God as our refuge and strength being for us being present there's no cause for fear now you, you go to the end of the Bible you start reading the book of Revelation and there are some events that start to look an awful lot like that and guess what God is protecting his people God is with his people there is no cause for fear and so the first stanza Radical confidence in God's sovereignty over nature. Now we're to look at the second stanza. Present assurance of the Lord's protective presence. Present assurance of the Lord's protective presence. Let's read that. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. And so we're just going to take this one verse at a time. Verse 4. We see that abundant life and joy where God dwells. The abundant life and joy where God dwells. Now this stanza is most definitely talking about Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But the, the emphasis is not particularly on that city, which by itself was unremarkable. It was just the hill of the Jebusites until David captured it. David himself was unremarkable until the Lord anointed him and made him the king. What is remarkable about Jerusalem, and, and the reason why I'm phrasing this the way I am, is the emphasis is that's where God is. God is in her midst. The reason she's unshakable, God is in her midst. It's not a magic city, although God has made promises for Jerusalem to be rebuilt and restored that are not yet fulfilled, and we look forward with great hope, the millennium and, and the reign of Christ from Jerusalem. But it's not because Jerusalem itself inherently is special, but rather, in, in their day, that's where the temple was. And in the temple is where God's Shekinah glory, his, his personal presence was. And because of that, there was joy in life. And so the, the point I want to make is, since this stanza places all of these consequences on God's presence, I've got to ask today, where is God's localized presence? It's in his people, it's in his church. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, on believers so that we now are the temple of the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians. And so I, I think it holds true that if there is life and joy where God dwells in Jerusalem, then there's also life and joy where God dwells in his church as well. Um, and, we, and we see this here with the contrast of the waters that are raging in the first stanza, raging, terrifying waters, and a life-giving river. Calm, controlled, useful water. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There's actually not any major rivers running through Jerusalem. Some have thought this might be the river of Siloam. But more likely, it's either an idealized picture of Jerusalem or an eschatological picture of Jerusalem. Um, idealized in the sense of the Garden of Eden had a river running through it. Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. But more importantly, in the New Jerusalem, the book of Revelation, there is most definitely a river present. 
Um, and that is Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And I think we'll see that there is a sort of eschatological um, bent to this psalm and I think it likely that this is the sort of idealized future Jerusalem that is in view um, it, it could be referencing the, the river of Siloam but we know that the Jerusalem in, in the book of Revelation will have a river going right down the middle giving life giving life and so there's life and there is joy these streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the most high and so in contrast to the apocalyptic vision of uncreation in the first stanza, with God, not only is there safety, there's joy and there's peace. Secondly, we see in verse 5 the absolute security and defense where God dwells. Absolute security and defense where God dwells. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. I just love that. God is in the midst of her. And consequently, she shall not be moved. Now, I want you to notice something remarkable. I mean, this, this really struck me as I was studying this passage. There's, there's a repetition of words in the stanzas. Up in verse 2, the psalmist is willing to consider the possibility of uncreation. The earth, the mountains may be, in fact, moved. That's possible. It could happen. Certainly in, in earthquakes, certainly um, in a localized level, the mountains move. The psalmist is willing to consider that and be unafraid in the face of that. Down in verse 6, same word, the kingdoms totter. They are moved. And, and just in our lifetime, we've seen kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. The nations can be moved. So, so the mountains can be moved and the nations can be moved, but guess what can't be moved? What, what can't be moved, what can't even be considered to be moved is where God dwells. In this case, the city of Jerusalem can't be moved. The earth could be uncreated. That's possible. The nations could be moved. They certainly are. Jerusalem, where God dwells, not a chance. It's just bold. Bold confidence in God. And, and before you say, wait a second, wait a second, J Jerusalem was captured. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, pillaged its goods, and, and took Israel away. That's true. It absolutely is true. But remember the key. Why, why is Jerusalem unmovable? Because God is in her midst, which is why it's, it's key. We won't turn there, but you can look it up your own. In Ezekiel 9 through 11, there's a series of Vignettes of the Shekinah glory of God leaving the Holy of Holies, exiting the west gate of the temple, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and it's gone. And the point is this, that when Nebuchadnezzar shows up, God has already vacated the premises. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar defeated Yahweh, but Yahweh, in judgment on his people, has removed his localized presence. He's removed his hand of blessing, and so Jerusalem does not have the living God in her midst. And so Jerusalem is a very unstable city. 
And the psalm makes it clear. Where does Jerusalem's stability come from? It comes from the presence of the Lord. Because where God dwells, there is security and defense. You know, Jeremiah warns Israel not to simply think that the city itself is untakeable. Um, apparently, there was a faction of, of Jews so zealous that they just thought the temple was undestroyable. And in, Je- in Jeremiah 7, they're warned, don't say the temple, the temple, the temple, as if it's some lucky rabbit's foot. It's the God of the temple. It's the God of Israel who you must put your trust in. Now, that temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was burned and destroyed. And it's been rebuilt, and it will be rebuilt still. And so the key is security and defense where God dwells. So here's the point I want to make for us all. If you're a child of God, if you're a born-again believer, then God's Spirit dwells in you, and you cannot be moved. Uh, it's possible that due to sin and wandering in the darkness that our fellowship with God is, is thin, and at that point I think we can become more unstable. But when our fellowship with the Lord is, is good and tight, when we're cleaving to him by faith, we can't be moved because he can't be moved. Thirdly, we see almighty power and victory where God dwells. Almighty power and victory where God dwells. And so the threat in the first stanza was uncreation or tidal waves and earthquakes. The threat in the second stanza is very direct and personal. It's attack on God's holy people. It's attack on Jerusalem. And so he writes, the nation's rage, which corresponds to the water's roar. Same language. Loud, frightening noise. The nation's rage corresponding to the water's roaring. The kingdoms totter like the mountains that move. And then God makes some noise. He utters his voice. The earth melts. See, the water makes some noise. Don't be afraid. The nations can make some noise. Don't be afraid. God makes some noise. Watch out. Watch out. Notice again, what is God's weapon of choice? Words. Language. Right? How does he create the world? He speaks. And how does he set down and shut down this rebellion? Again, he speaks. Turn to Revelation 19. We'll see this in action on, on a global scale, which is where I think Psalm 46 is headed. By the third stanza, we're, we're getting them to a global scale. Here it's localized. It's nations attacking Jerusalem. But when it finally goes global on a worldwide scale in the book of Revelation, and Jerusalem is under attack, Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head there are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The resurrected, victorious, risen Lord of glory, when he comes to do battle with the nations of the world who are raging and tottering, what weapon does he use? The words of his mouth. For he is the word of God. And we're going to do a series here in in April and May about the power, the authority, the importance of the Bible. And I just want you to understand that, that our God primarily works through speaking, through through. The power of his word. He created the universe through the power of his word. He upholds the universe by the power of the word. And when it comes down, when it comes time to shut things down, he will do it by the power of his word. He opens his mouth, according to Psalm 46, utters his voice, and the earth melts. That's the type of strong defense God is. It doesn't, it's not, a, it's not really a competition. It's not a big struggle. I mean, this is going to make a kind of boring movie because, you know, the, the bad guys would show up and then God, the good guy, would just speak and it would be game over. It's not much of a battle. It's total victory. God will help her when the morning comes, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. And so the second stanza then comes to a chorus. And the chorus is this declaration, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. This, of course, gets repeated in verse 11. And literally again, the Lord of hosts is for us. And so the point here, the Lord, the warrior king, is our strong defense. The Lord of hosts, maybe some of your Bibles, Sabaoth, that's just the Hebrew, Lord of armies is the idea. The Lord of armies is a warrior king fights for his people. And he is our strong defense. And they also throw in this other title here, the God of Jacob, which is a subtle reminder because Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. And it also is a reminder of God's covenant by naming the God of Jacob. God is sworn to protect his people by covenant. It is more likely for the universe to be unmade than for God to break his covenant, for God not to defend his people. And so, by calling this to mind, by rejoicing, I mean, what awesome power. You think of the foolishness of trembling at the nations, of trembling at what man can do, when a God who speaks and the earth melts is on our side. And he has sworn to us by covenant, the defender of his people, he is our fortress. And again, this is a picture of security. This is a picture of protection. What God is to us. Now, we're not sure entirely about the historical circumstances surrounding the writing of Psalm 46, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 18. I want to try to give a practical example of a situation that, that looks like this. 
It's possible some commentators have suggested that Psalm 46 was written in response to the events of 2 Kings 18. But regardless, this is a good demonstration of what we're talking about. In 2 Kings 18, we have the account of the Assyrian Sennacherib drawing close to attack Judah and Jerusalem. And Sennacherib sends an envoy to go speak with King Hezekiah who mocks the living God. Um, we're just going to piecemeal our way through the story so we don't read two whole chapters here, but pick it up in verse 22 as he mocks Hezekiah and the living God. If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put riders on them. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up and destroy this land. Destroy it. So he's basically taunting them. He's saying, your army is so pathetic. I would give you 2,000 horses if you had enough trained men to ride them. The implication, you don't. And I did this entire military conquest without the help of the Lord. Thank you very much. What makes you think he's going to stop me? Furthermore, jump down to verse 29. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. And then he encourages them just simply to surrender and make peace. And I'll give you food, and I'll take you away to a nice land. And Hezekiah gets frightened, and Isaiah shows up. In verse chapter 19, and encourages him and says in verse 6, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall in the sword by the sword in his own land. And what happens is Sennacherib comes out again and, and mocks the living God and reviles him again. And then Hezekiah prays to God. And in chapter 19, verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their men's lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And then jump down to the end of chapter 19 to see what happens. This is a picture of the threat. You've got an army gathered around Jerusalem. How hard is it for God to defeat an army? Let's take a look and see. Verse 32. <laughs> Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not 
come into the city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it by the way that he came by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city declares the Lord for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nikrach, his god, Adramalek and Sharazar, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Arat. And Eshredon, his son, reigned in his place. One angel wiped down 185,000 soldiers. And God is not the... The, the king of an angel. He's the king of armies of angels. It's the Lord of hosts. This is just one member of his host did this. You, you get the idea? It's, it's, not a, it's not a struggle. When God wants to defeat his enemies, he, he does. And those he allows to prosper for a time are, are only at his permission. Only by him allowing it. And so because of this now, we turn our attention to the final stanza announcing God's victory. A call to trust in the Lord, the victorious king. A call to trust in the Lord, the victorious king. And now the tone shifts because of what's been declared to be true. An invitation is made. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. And so we're going to break this into two sections. First, witness the Lord's victory over all the earth. The second stanza, we're dealing localized with just the city of Jerusalem. Now, the entire earth is in view. Witness the Lord's victory over all the earth. First, we're going to see the scope of his victory. It's the entire earth. It's not one country. It's not one region. It's not one area, but the whole earth. This is sort of hearkening back to the promises that the Messiah King made in, in Psalm 2, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is why I think there's some sort of eschatological view here, because this goes beyond simply Israel defeating her enemies to a worldwide conquest. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. So how, how broad is his victory? Total. Total victory. And how, with what finality has God brought a victory? Again, total finality. Notice what's said here. Weapons are just destroyed. He wins, and not only does he win, there's just no more armies to fight. He, he breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Elsewhere, the Bible will talk about taking swords and turning them to plowshares. God's victory is total, and God's victory is permanent. It lasts. It endures. This is an omnipotent God. 
when he is victorious. He is victorious. When you're defeated, you stay defeated. When he fights for you, you win. And so we're called to witness this. Again, more reasons to encourage us. He's, he's asking us with our mind's eye to env envisage this triumphant scene. And, and this hasn't happened yet. And for those of you who are in the Revelation ABF, you're, you're going to see more about this happening, but we know it will happen. This is the victory our God will have. And again, the, the concept is in light of this, trust him. In light of this, be confident. In light of this, do not fear. And second, we are called to worship the Lord exalted among the nations. Worship the Lord exalted among the nations. And now in this psalm, something remarkable happens. The Lord himself, the Lord God, speaks. Notice that. Up to this point, the psalmist has been speaking. And now, at least in my translation, we get quotation marks. Be still and know that I am God. This is God talking. And what's amazing is he's talked previously in this psalm, and when he did, he melted the earth. But now, this power is restrained. It is under control. And a message of peace is delivered, not just to his people, but to the world. The, the recipients, the verb is plural. Be still, all of you. Both his people and the raging, tottering nations that are in view. God could destroy them with the sound of his voice. God could speak them out of existence. And instead, an invitation to worship in peace. Worship the Lord, exalted among the nations. The Lord God speaks. And it does not destroy us. Because he is compassionate and gracious. He doesn't need to warn people. He doesn't need to give people a chance to repent. But he does. And so first, we'll look at this as a call to his people of absolute trust and worship. A call to his people of absolute trust and worship. Remember, this is because he's addressing all the people in view here, both his people and the raging nations. First, we'll look at this, this call to be still and what it means to his people. Be still really more accurately means cease, desist, stop what you're doing. And maybe it's envisioning um, Israel and Jerusalem, fearful, the enemies gather, what are we going to do? We start making preparations to stop. Stop, I'm God. Know that I'm God. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to take care of you. And if you look back through the biggest salvific um, circumstances in the Bible, it's always God acting alone. Be still, I will part the Red Sea. Be still, my son will pay for your sins on the cross. Be still, my son will return and with the words of his mouth defeat his enemies. And so God's word to his people is, is don't fear. Be still. Know that I am God. This isn't a call to live a life where, where we don't lock our doors and we don't go to work because God's going to take care of us. But it's this position of the heart, a stillness and a calmness of heart that knows that God knows what we need. You think of Jesus telling the, the crowds, if the Lord's aware of every fall of every sparrow, don't you think he's aware of you? Don't you think he cares for you if he feeds them every day? Don't you think he's going to feed you? Don't you think he's going to take care of you? Are you not worth more than many sparrows? Be still. Be still. And know that I am God. And then for his people, 
God declares with no, with no embarrassment his absolute fixed purpose of being glorified among the nations and in the world. God is not apologetic for this. He's on a mission to glorify himself, to glorify his son. And we're part of that mission and he loves us and that's wonderful. But, but notice here, God's zeal for his own glory is the reason the psalmist and Israel and us can take confidence in God acting. God says, I will be glorified. I will be exalted among the nations. That's, that's his word for us. He will win and he will be exalted. So be still. Stop fretting. Stop being anxious. Relax. The omnipotent God is on your side and he has promised and he will keep his word. Secondly, also we saw this is applicable to God's enemies, the raging and roaring and tottering nations. What is his word here for them? It's a call to his enemies of absolute surrender. You can picture the nations gathering up to fight God. They're, as silly as that sounds, they're going to try more than once. When he says to them, be still. Stop, stop it. Stop what you're doing. Know that I'm God. It's a call for surrender. And God is always, at least before the Lord Jesus returns, always inviting his enemies to surrender. In fact, if you are his child here today, there was a time when you were his enemy and you surrendered, when you laid down your arms, where you switched allegiances. And so God, with his voice that could melt us, speaks to us in kindness, speaks to us in compassion, speaks to us in meekness, and he says, be still. Stop warring with me. We don't need to be enemies. We don't need to be at odds. Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted. I will win. If you're God's enemy, you will lose. You will lose. Every knee will bow. And some of them will bow because they're broken with a rod of iron. But every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee and every tongue. But oh, what a blessing for those who do it willingly. Oh, what a blessing for those who choose to renounce their rebellion and turn to God in faith. And so practically for us, that means if you're here today and you don't know God by faith, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus if you are still warring with God and inwardly in your heart God's inviting you to lay down your arms to surrender and turn to trust his son it's a wonderful announcement of mercy before what we know are told will be an absolute total and devastating victory see if you delay if you don't switch teams now if you don't put your trust in Jesus now you will be defeated in an absolute and total and permanent sense. And so God stretches out a, a, an olive branch. He says, be still. Look to my son. Be saved. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross for your sins, who paid the penalty of your rebellion, who paid the, rebel the penalty of you living a life doing whatever you wanted. Come, come, come be at peace with me, he says. Be still. Know that I am God. And that finally brings us to the final chorus. A repeat of verse 7. The Lord of hosts is for us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And 
And it's just encouraging to be reminded again, this Lord of armies, this Lord of armies is on our side. I just want to take a moment and and show you this principle and application. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be arrested and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest, Jesus says to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus knew who his father was. You saw what one angel did to Sennacherib's army. What would 12 legions of angels do? And so Jesus was confident. He wasn't afraid. He knew his father was the Lord of hosts. And so he trusted his father. If my father has deemed that this is the path I will go through, then I will go. And I know that he can deliver me at a moment's notice. But more importantly, turning your Bibles finally to Romans 8. Three times we have heard in this psalm that God is for us. He is for his people. And as the worship team comes up to the platform to get ready for our closing song, I just want to read Romans 8, 31 to 38, where I think Paul, if not directly quoting this psalm, it has the theology of this psalm in view. Romans 8, 31 to 38. What then shall we say to these things? Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the implication here is who can be against us with any chance of winning? Well, all sorts of people can be against us, but no one of any consequence. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's stack that up. The Father gave his son for you. Can you doubt that he will defend you? The son died for you. Can you doubt that he loves you? He is currently interceding for you, actively on your behalf. And then we get these great rhetorical questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And and the psalmist could add, or mountains crumbling, or oceans raging. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor principalities can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. God is for you, and he is a stronghold, and he is secure, and he will fight for his people, and he will defend them. And he will win. And because of that, we will not be afraid. And when we are afraid, we will return to Psalms 46, 47, 48, and other passages and remind ourselves of these great truths so that we will take courage. We're to close now singing a psalm, not this psm but a psalm with a very similar theme about how we will not be afraid. Please stand. Stand.